Hello, and welcome to the final installment of the Better Together podcast. Today we'll be interviewing Benny Torres, a lecturer in the Department of Advertising here at the College of Journalism and Communications. Welcome, Benny Torres, to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. So my first question is, you graduated from the University of Florida with bachelor's degrees in psychology and advertising. Coming back now, what differences do you see on campus? Oh, wow. Uh, What a big question. Yeah, so 2007, what was that, 12 years ago? It's always nice to come back. It looks pretty much the same. When I came here in 2007, so it was very much like um, title town. So that's a big change, actually. And I remember thinking, I think we're getting back into it now, but I remember thinking when I first came here, like, oh, I miss that. Like, that. there's one of the first things someone told me was like, oh, well, you know, uh, games aren't sold out really anymore. And I was like, what? Like, that was a huge sort of shock to me. The other change that is a lot more, I think, relevant to the topic of this podcast is it is in my humble opinion, like demonstrably less diverse, unfortunately. And I see that across a number of ways. Now, I do have to caveat, I'm not a student, obviously, anymore. Just the lack of groups of students of color hanging out. I don't know how to say it. Again, it could be because I'm not uh, a student, but like when I came here, it was very much like, you know, you could see like the Asian Student Union sort of like, you know, doing their own thing. They're like, I remember sort of interacting with the Bangra Club a lot. Uh, I remember there's a huge, 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 um, I felt like at least a huge emphasis on black frats and black sororities, a lot of step shows, a lot of just. A lot of diversity, a lot of open displays of diversity. And part of that was also we used to have a program 10 years ago called Manamba Minority Ambassadors. And there was a Department of Minority Affairs, um, which I don't know if it's a thing or not. But like there, when I came here, I came here on merit-based scholarship, which after I think Jeb Bush kind of did this thing called One Florida, all that went out the window. But that was sort of the lightning rod for any minority who was here in any way, form or fashion on scholarship. So what ended up happening was because you had to sort of earn points and engage with the community and we're talking even sort of like they incentivize us to give um, minority schools tours, uh, and there was like a central office where like literally this, this department was like concierge service almost for minority students where they told us like your first call if you get into trouble your first call if you have a problem is not to your advisor is not to any of these other things you come to us first. And that was really cool. It was really comforting. Uh, and I saw that work in or overt ways and subtle ways. Now, you know, in the moment as a student, like you're kind of like, well, this is a little bit BS and why do I have to like work extra hard to get my money? But in hindsight, it was a way of building community that I don't think would have existed otherwise. And it was a way of supporting each other through sort of still being a minority on this campus uh, that kind of hasn't, you know, been around. And I'm actually weirdly uniquely equipped to say this just because uh, my first year here, I actually did decide to join the Match and Opportunity Scholars program, which is like a mentorship program that I think was the replacement for the Office of Minority Affairs. And I, again, I could be getting all of this wrong. There could still be an Office of Minority Affairs, but I know that for a fact there's like not Manamba and all this other stuff. Um, and yeah, that was fine. It was great. Um, but it was just a mentorship program. It wasn't this sort of like 
intensive, overt department and like, you know, over and over again, the hard work of, you know, recruiting minorities, making them feel comfortable here. Yeah, I definitely see that theme in community, obviously in the minority program that you were talking about, because people were kind of forced into creating some kind of community. But also even with the sports, there was probably more community around the sports aspect of when you came here. Yeah, I think community is it. I like minority aside, like I think community is a big change that I see here. Now, again, I understand, like, I'm not a student, so, like, it might be that I'm not, like, tapped Mm -hmm. into that, but, like, my sense from talking to other minority students and talking to other people of color here is that it's kind of like when the hub of a wheel gets taken out. I don't think we realize sort of the effect that that was going to have on it. I don't know why the black frats and the black sororities aren't as you know, visible here anymore. I don't know why I, I see less groups of students, um, you know, interacting. It's actually really interesting even talking about it right now and hearing you talk about that community word. Like one of the things I have heard is that in the absence of something like a department of minority affairs, uh, it ends up being very like fiefdom and very like, you know, uh, and I mean this in the formal definition of the word, like ghettoized where like, mm-hmm all these sort of like student organizations that are oriented around Hispanic students or black students or, you know, students from, you know, the, the Indian student union or whatever, like they just are now because they're not really connected by anything. They're all just kind of fighting for the same resources and kind of have almost like a frenemy relationship. Oh, and having La Casita and like having those places, which I know they're rebuilding and like whatever, but Having physical spaces on campus where, like, you knew you could get cafecito or you knew you could get, like, Cuban bread and all that kind of stuff, I think was also a big loss. And I, I, I'm, I'm excited that, like, they're building those now and building them out and whatever, but that loss is palpable as well. Yeah, even if you're not directly involved, the visibility still matters. Still just knowing that it's there matters so much to so many students. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and, I mean, I think... The lesson I take away from that change that I've seen over the last 10 years, you know, my heart is a little broken about it. You know, I don't actually even like blame UF about it because it's kind of like legislature and, and, you know, it's it's part of this ongoing conversation about whether or not we need affirmative action and all this kind of stuff. But I, I... it matters, I guess. Like, I, I guess, you know, I was here 10 years ago. I was here 11 years ago. I was here 12 years ago. And that's not that long ago. And so I have memories of it. And like, it has seemed to get appreciably worse. Um, and the numbers back that up. But you can feel it. You can feel it on campus. And I've even talked to alumni who graduated about around the time I graduated. And they say when they visit, it feels a little bit different. So we got some work to do. We got we got some work to to get back to where we were, you know, 10 or 12 years ago in, in terms of community building and connecting. So the next question is, soon after graduation, you got into the most promising minority students program while criticizing it for being patronizing. What do you think of programs like this and what recommendations can you give them? It's really funny because I think they even changed it from most promising minority to most promising multicultural. And that was part of their sensitivity. Yeah, I thought it was patronizing from the very beginning. So like 12 years ago, they, they I remember them explicitly asking me a question that was like um, on the application that was like, how does you being a minority help make for a more inclusive ad industry? And I was like, what? Like, what a weird question. Like, it just felt like a very strange question. And so even when I applied, I remember applying with a bit of sass and sort of 
you know, holding their feet to the fire a little bit of like, well, wait a second, like this program exists because the industry needs to be more diverse by hiring me. I don't know. <laughs> like, so that was weird. Um, and I've still interacted with them. Now, look, you know, there, 12 years ago, we were having a problem in the industries about diversity. Um, t- that's 10 years ago, we were having these conversations and the same editorial essentially came out just a couple months ago on Ad Age about the problem with women, especially in creative departments and minorities in the industry. Being in the industry for 10 years, like I get it because it's a who you know business, not a what you know business. And it's very, very much about networking. I certainly see it as almost like um, a very easy way to like get out of whatever socioeconomic status you are in and elevate just because it's creativity and and there's such a desperate need for diversity. I need to honor the fact that like that program gave me an opportunity unlike any other. And I don't think I would be here without that program and the support that that program gave me, you know, ostensibly it was a job fair uh, for like basically only 50 kids and I leveraged the hell out of it and, and frankly have even given back to it because I believe in it. And also like I have some fealty and I have some, you know, I feel, you know, very thankful for, for what they did. On the flip side, one of the things I'm struggling with overall is like this problem hasn't changed about representation in the industry in 10 to 12 years. So like we're doing the same things and it's clear that like it might be sort of a little bit of healing cream on a rash that is all over the whole body. Sorry for the gross metaphor, but like, so where my frustrations lie now is with how under-resourced they are given the problems that we have in the industry and given how much of a opportunity from a monetary standpoint, let alone sort of just a human standpoint or an integrity standpoint, we have. When it comes to those programs, I am most frustrated right now. Like, look, I think they're great. I think they're important. I think every minority who is listening to this, every person of color who is listening to this should apply to these programs. Use that opportunity. It can be a meal ticket and, and, it, and you know, it helps. That said, like in interacting with them and seeing how the applications have changed and seeing how the hurdles we have to jump through or the hoops we have to jump through to get there change and seeing how some of these recruiting firms and some of these agencies sort of treat it like a check. We did it. We're good now. We're good now because we have a MAPE intern. It really makes me cringe and it really makes me angry because it's sort of like an easy way out. The industry needs to support most promising multicultural student program and the MAPE program tenfold, 50-fold. It's not enough. It's not enough staff. It's not enough resources, especially given the depths of the problem. We have so many talented minorities and people of color who are jumping through hoops unnecessarily. It just feels like it incentivizes a little bit of tokenization and it feels like it it, it creates an environment where like a lot of these organizations or companies can say, check, we did it and we're good. And I'm not trying to look a gift horse in the mouth. I think I desperately think we need these programs. It's a matter of it. My frustrations with them are a matter of investment and a matter of how limited it causes some recruiters or some agencies to think about minority candidates and think about how much work they need to do in order to recruit and sort of properly create the representation that's not only moral, but also very candidly is going to be the future of our industries and the future of like, you know, making money. 
we need more support. Uh, and, and the other thing I'll say about it is part of the work that I'm doing here uh, is trying to like radicalize students to like speak up and say something and, and demand more and articulate why. With that same program, you worked for Leo Burnett on the Nintendo account. Video games are traditionally marketed towards men. What do you think people should do to make sure their message doesn't leave people out? Yeah, it's really interesting. One of my first assignments that I ever worked on the Nintendo account was um, figuring out how to target um, the DS at the time to women. You know, Nintendo's a unique case because Nintendo actually kind of explicitly is, of all the video game um, developers and the video game companies out there, I think they have probably done the most to have games that are as universally appealing as possible, and therefore they had the most right to have female targeted marketing campaigns. I mean, look, in advertising NPR, you're going to have audiences. Audiences are necessarily stereotypable things, and and so I, I think in advertising and NPR, we wield stereotypes for positive effect and for sort of trying to change behavior and trying to sort of motivate people. The question I would ask is not necessarily sort of like how do we ensure that these companies don't leave people out, but like how do we ensure that either they recognize that a mass message needs to be as inclusive as possible and you don't sacrifice anything by like basically a lot of people I think think that mass messages are generic messages when I just don't believe that I, you know I think we lose a lot by going generic you can go mass and target a lot of different people and have a lot of representation in your ads in that way um, I also think it's a matter of like if I'm being honest like micro targeting and understanding that like in this media environment in this industry like targeting one audience does not mean you can't target another audience that seems to be mutually exclusive but again you know it's not okay this is why, like, I need you in the industry. Like, I, I will tell this to, like, a lot of young people of color. Like, we need you in the industry. I'll tell this to queer people. We need you in there. Like, I have this fire in my belly that, like, the only answer is more of us in there because at the critical decision points, we will be able to uniquely say it should be a queer person or it should be a black person, it should be a brown person, or just we, because I think we are uniquely sort of victimize is maybe too big of a word, but we live in a context where the predominant sort of target markets and the predominant people that we see in these ads are still white, straight, male, female, whatever. Like we are uniquely equipped to like be in the room at the moment. You know, I'm a big Hamilton nut and they talk about like be in the room when it happens. And like we have to be in the room when it happens. And even as a junior employee, I was able to articulate some things and show insight and sort of be a vivid, candid voice for all the minorities that I represent by being in the room. What do I think people should do to, to make sure their message doesn't leave people out? Go demand jobs at these places. Go be badass. And like, whether it's through minority programs or not, like we just need a groundswell of people. And I get that that is not incumbent on the oppressed. Like, I get it. I absolutely understand that there needs to be some systemic change, but very politely, I'm done with the bureaucracy and I'm done with, I'm done with all the archies. So like, it's got to come from us. It, it has to. That's part of the reason why, like, I did not go into like multicultural ads or multicultural agencies because, like, I want to be on a mainline brand and in a mainline agency and making sure that they are putting me, whether it's through my voice or through my casting or through the structure of an idea, in communications in ads in media because it matters so the next question is at leo Pratt, <laughs> you were also known as the intern who wore ties where of the did day. you get this information <laughs> okay keep on asking a question sorry what do you recommend to underrepresented students who want to stand out in the workplace yeah 
that's amazing where did you find that out um i wore i very famously wore a tie every day of my internship it was um it was like a five week six week internship and like the story behind the story there by the way is i thought that working you had to dress professionally whatever the hell that meant so my you know dumbass like just raided my dad's tie closet and he had all these like fabulous like hideous but fabulous like 70s and 80s like power ties and so I built my whole professional quote-unquote professional wardrobe for this internship around these ties like I was like I was feeling myself and so when we got to Leo at the first day and all of us were wearing ties and suits and stuff they were like oh by the way like nobody dresses like that here like you could dress a lot more chill like you don't have to really wear ties every day and I was like so disappointed and I was like you know what I brought all these ties I am going to wear a tie every day and I would even like so on quote-unquote casual Fridays like so I would wear a tie every day with a matching shirt and like slacks um and I became known as the tie guy just because I was always wearing a tie um and then on Fridays I would wear like sneakers shorts a button down and still a tie so like I, I was a hot mess like I looked but like they still found it cute so like you know you're talking about this sort of like what do you recommend underrepresented students do who want to stand out in the workplace be yourself like fully yourself the question that I ask and I'm like if I could look to the camera I would look to the camera but I'm looking at Natalie in the eyes right now because I firmly believe this who set what professional means who set that who got to set who got to set that if you really think about it just ask yourself that question who set what professional means and what does professional even mean, right? What does what I wear have to do with professionalism, especially in this new world? So I think the first thing I would challenge underrepresented students to consider is like, what does professionalism mean to them? And, you know, it's funny. I ask that question a lot. I don't, I have never articulated it. Like to me, it doesn't really have to do with, I mean, yeah, don't smell, you know, look nice-ish. Like, don't look like a schlub, whatever that means. But I think it's a little bit of common sense. That said, like, I don't think dreads have anything to do with professionalism. I don't think hair color has anything to do with professionalism. I don't think piercings or tattoos have anything to do with professionalism. Yeah, so that would be the first step. I would say challenge the notion of professionalism. What does that mean? And as long as you have an internal definition of that that lives up to your values and your integrity and how you want to be perceived, but also how you want to express yourself. I think we have too long focused on how we are perceived versus what I am expressing and what I am here to give and wield it, play with it. You know, RuPaul says, you're, we're all born naked and the rest is drag. Like, wear your drag. And I, I will say that like the opportunity to enter into a formal workplace is an opportunity to put on some different drag, to put on some different costume, to put on some different thing and, and see how you feel. But even if like you're going to make some decisions that's going to have people questioning you, like one of my favorite stories is one of my mentors uh, always wears chucks and he was a young guy am amongst all these sort of like old stodgy guys and he would enter into meetings and they would think he would be the most junior employee, but he was actually the one that they were there to meet with. He was the senior executive and like he would still wear chucks and he would use it as a weapon, as a way of depositioning them and kind of going like, you look kind of uncomfortable. I still look fly as hell. So question notion of professionalism. When you come in 
with this idea of what professional means, it limits you and whitewashes you and makes you sort of like fit into this mold that is actually, I think, a, a disincentive. And I don't feel good in that. And I don't think most people feel good in that. And I also think like if you look the same as everyone else and you're slightly better than everyone else at doing the same thing, like how how's that going to work, especially with all the biases we have out there? So I would say if you're an underrepresented sort of student uh, wanting to stand out in the workplace, stand out, be brave, be yourself. And if you're freaked out by doing the whole thing, like I started out by being colorful and sort of like hacking the existing norms, but then slowly but surely making sure that they understood that like I was doing this on purpose and, it, you know, this is the new normal. I think it's I think it's how you talk. I think it's talking to people like humans, not talking to people like whatever title they are, and pick an iconic color or hack that in to what is existing happening so that it shines even more. So the next question is, your WUFT Hispanic Heritage Month article said that you've realized your heritage background and being expressive about that is important because it brings your unique perspective to the table. Can you elaborate on that? Um. From Miami. I was born in Miami. Um, my parents are, I always forget what the actual, I think they're second generation and I'm third generation because their parents were born in Puerto Rico and Cuba and they, they were born here. It's a weird perspective, especially growing up in a minority majority town, which is like Miami is fully Latino. Like there are neighborhoods in Miami where you don't, you don't speak English. So like I, 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 I never really grew up aware of my minority status, and let alone, then I came out at 25. So, like, I really wasn't aware of that particular minority status as a, a queer dude. So, here's what I'll say. I think recognizing how you are different, recognizing how you are weird, recognizing that, like, where you come from, who raised you, what the environment is that you were raised in, and wielding that is important because what else do you have to give I don't know about you Natalie but I don't feel like I can I can't speak on behalf of all Latinos or Latinas I can't speak on behalf of all queers all I can do is express my experience as directly and as vividly as possible and try to link it to some more universal experiences and that's the only way I know how to do it any other time that I've tried to sort of think as a quote-unquote Latino or a quote-unquote gay man and talk about those identities separate from what my experience has been, I end up in a very strange place um, where I feel like I'm not really tethered to anything and I'm operating in some weird sort of like stereotypes and some weird biases and whatever. So like I am um, very into storytelling and I think like just telling your story and sharing your perspective and and even qualifying your opinions and your perspective from the place of like connecting it with your history and connecting it with where you come from. It teaches everyone. It teaches everyone. what That's what ends up happening is without even teaching on purpose by storytelling and sort of linking whatever your problems you're trying to solve or linking whatever stories you're telling in the moment to your past, to your heritage, to your tradition, to your subgroup, to your, you know, to your identity. Um, that's how we learn. Um, that's why I actually have a massive distaste for this notion of like, well, we're all the same and we have equality and why can't we just focus on, on what, what, you know, what we share, you know, politely. And I promise I wouldn't curse too much, but like, 
bullshit. Like, I'm different. Like, I want to be known as a queer brown man from Miami because I don't see that out there enough. And I think that everyone can learn from that hyper specific experience. And I want, you know, I want to know what it feels like to be a white, you know, middle class um, person who grew up in New Hampshire. Like that's an experience I've never had. And I want that to be shared with me as well, not from a place of guilt or shame or any of it, but like from a place of, oh, how interesting I I could learn from that. And I also think that like by expressing myself as someone who's a Latin guy from Miami, being surrounded by people who look like me, I can connect with Heather from New Hampshire, who also grew up with people who look like her, uh, and we can relish in that um, and learn from each other in that way. Um, so yeah, I, I I think it's storytelling, and I think it's you know acknowledging that we all come from somewhere, and that somewhere is the only place you could have come from. You can't come from multiple places, and when, and frankly, some of my favorite people are like army brats who do come from multiple places, and they have their own sort of perspective on on life and travel and philosophy and all that kind of stuff. So, like, I think it's got to start with, you know, heritage, background, history, being forward. Not in a way that excludes, not in a way that's like, oh, look at how I grew up in Miami and you didn't and you don't you'll never know. No, you will know because I'm, I'm I'm good. And I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna tell you how how it was. I'm gonna tell you what it was like. Yeah, I think it's important that you pointed out the kind of discomfort of generalizing your experience or trying to generalize your experience and speak for your whole like identity group, whatever that means. It's impossible to do that because everybody has different experiences. And to kind of like put the pressure on somebody of like, oh, well, what do blank people think about this? Like you have the answer is just ridiculous. What you are saying and what you have articulated, I think, cuts at one of the fundamental problems that we've got in this country right now that we are currently reckoning with, which is that cuts both ways, which is like, I think we can't expect not all white people speak for the white race. I don't think we should all be sort of trying to chase this magical equality, everyone doing the same thing experience. But I do think both people who are privileged and oppressed, both people who are minority and majority need to start acknowledging that like where they come from matters and that experience matters and hearing other people where they are coming from and not generalizing it. So the last question is, you consider yourself to be a storyteller. You yeah. talked a little bit about this. Yeah. But how do you think stories can bring people together? You know, this is a big topic, and it's something that I'm really excited to talk more about. I just actually co-hosted a storytelling event last night. I'm really fascinated by stories. Uh, and I think there's a couple of things here fundamentally we are storytellers and everything around you including your conversation is a story of some form or fashion and so i think acknowledging that is probably the first step and and more and more people realizing that like quote unquote storytelling isn't a podcast or isn't open mic night thing but it's like straight up what we do every single day of our lives and what we do to ourselves and how we process the world and it's that fundamental and that powerful i think is a, a good first step when I am telling a story, it's like a time machine or like some other version of myself enters into me and is like popping out my mouth. You're taking yourself back to that place. You're trying to draw out of yourself the most authentic and vulnerable version of 
your reality and it's just your story. That's all that's needed. All that's needed is your story and you telling it in the most vulnerable, personal, candid way you possibly can. And yeah, we've gone through some shit as humans. Every person has done some heinous things and every person has had some heinous things done to them. And every person, if they haven't experienced death yet, is going to experience death and is going to experience anxiety. And like literally every single person feels. I think that like acknowledging that and tapping into that energy and storytelling is actually the only way we're going to survive this thing. Uh, and I think it's about being vulnerable and super specific and really trying to take someone on a journey with you period literally take someone on a journey with you with who you are in that moment as imperfect as that is i'm still grappling with this net I think it's really way more powerful than I'm even articulating, and it matters. It's not some magical thing that only certain people can do. Like, your story matters, and just sharing your story and thinking about your life as a story and recognizing, like, that you are the protagonist, but that everyone else feels that way. You recognize that, like, by looking in your past— while you're experiencing something, you can't do anything but be the hero. While you're experiencing something, you can't do anything but be the main character. But once, once it's in the past, then you can be the narrator. Then you can actually remove yourself from it and go like, oh yeah, here's the journey of Benny coming out. Once you have a little bit of distance from it and you can sort of like add in some support structures, add in some context, add in some, the, some of the feelings that you maybe were feeling in the moment but couldn't articulate, then... People are like, wait a second, I've never heard anything like that. And, and, and you know, the last thing I'll say about it is like one of the reasons I think stories are so powerful is you can deny feelings. People certainly deny feelings all the time. Uh, you can deny facts. I mean, hell, we deny facts more than ever before. It is really, really, really difficult to deny a story because baked into a story is the fact that, yeah, it's how I perceived it and how I felt and how I viewed this. And, you know, it's a very easy way to, you know, across all these topics that we talked about, it's a very easy way to figure out whether or not someone is in earnest in commune with you. If they are challenging your story, then why are you even having a conversation? Because I can argue your feelings, as annoying as that is. I can argue your facts, which is bizarre. But, like, for whatever reason, I think stories are uniquely inoculated from that because, like, it ends up being like this conversation where someone's basically is forced to tell you like, no, that's not, that's not what happened. And it's like, well, you weren't there. You're not me. You're not in my head. I could do a whole podcast on this. We can be honest on storytelling alone. Um, but I love it. I would say, you know, for people looking to like get into it or, or think about it, start listening to some storytelling podcasts. The moth is great. Uh, there's one called self narrate and I'm myself a part of, so, you know, uh, whatever, uh, sponsor alert um and then go to open mic nights go to open mic nights and just stand up there and tell your story or you know just instead of having a book club have a story club sit around the table just like i mean that's where i learned how to story tell we all have families you know just start telling stories um maybe have themes or whatever but i think storytelling is how we get out of this storytelling is i think how we how we how we move forward and i think our generation uniquely is equipped to you know 
tap into the power of storytelling and diverse storytelling to change the MFM planet because uh, we need it. The world needs more stories and the world needs more stories from more people. So, yeah. I think that's a great note to end at. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for coming by, Benny. Thank you for listening to me for an hour and a half. All uh, hopefully 10 of you that are, that are <laughs> going to listen to the podcast. It was great to be here. For more information or to hear about our other podcasts, please go on our website, inworkplaylife.com.